Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, we're dedicating our entire show to politics. The mass politics profs are here to talk about the newly minted 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. What can we expect from the first 100 days of Trump's presidency? And how are local politicians reacting to Trump and his administration? Later on, we'll discuss Tito Jackson and his mayoral candidacy, Marty Walsh's State of the City address, and the fate of the Democratic Party, both nationally and here in Massachusetts. Joining me in the studio are two of the mass politics profs. Aaron O'Brien is chair and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome, Aaron. Pleased to be here. Glad to have you. And Peter Rubertaccio is an associate professor of political science and the director of the Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. Hi, Peter. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you, too. So let's just uh, jump right in. First, let me just make clear to people that we're we're taping this before the inauguration, so you're not listening to us thinking, why aren't they talking about the inauguration? Because we're <laughs> taping it before. But we have a lot of things to say uh, going up to the inauguration. And the first thing I want to talk about was really the decision not only by some in the Massachusetts delegation, but across the country, the Democrats, not to attend. At last, my last count, it was 61. I don't know if you all have heard differently. Uh, But Peter, you have some thoughts about what that might mean long term. We know what it'll mean short term. There'll be extra seats, as President (laughs) Trump uh, (laughs) said he was going to have. But uh, go ahead. Yes. You know, I think uh, a lot has been made about the governor's decision to attend, and he's been criticized by by his opponents for that. Catherine Clark, the congresswoman from uh, just north of Boston, was one of those who early on said that she was going to boycott given the president's uh, behavior and the kind of campaign that he he ran. And then she's subsequently been joined by dozens of other Democratic members of the House. I tend to not be critical of either of those choices. I think there's a very good reason to attend an event like the inauguration. It is one of our few affairs of state. It is important to demonstrate unity, particularly in in a democracy uh, where things can fall apart so easily. The last time we had significant disruption of an inauguration was, you know, preceding the Civil War. And so I think it, it's it's important, particularly for the governor as a, as a, the executive of a state, to go and demonstrate loyalty to the Constitution and to adhere to the peaceful transition. On the other hand, uh, everything that I think Catherine Clark has said about Donald Trump and the kind of campaign that he ran is true. And he does represent a bigger threat to the republic than his predecessors. He does engage in personal attacks that are, I think, dangerous for a powerful leader. He has engaged in demagoguery. He did run a campaign with overtures of misogyny and racism. And by not going, she is drawing attention, I think, to the very real danger that he represents. So um, since we're talking about politics, this is all politics. So as Peter has laid out, there are you know, good reasons on both sides. But do you think long term it comes back to snap us here in 
Massachusetts <laughs> and, other, and the other people who right. didn't show up actually across sure. the country. I, you know, I think any snap that's coming back to Massachusetts <laughs> was coming anyway. <laughs> but he, the fact that we even have to ask the question is incredibly telling. I mean, this is a president-elect who has demonstrated or has shown a very thin skin. And the fact that we in Massachusetts or in other states in congressional districts that have, you know, decided not to go are worried about it says to me that this is, as Peter said, not a normal election. And I think both choices are patriotic. But I think more importantly, the patriotic thing to do is not to have such a thin skin that we have to worry about a policy feedback or a kickback or cruelty or being left out of a line budget or something like that because members of Congress chose not to go to the inauguration. It's not like they're, you know, in the streets necessarily or planning major counter protest in Boston with congressional leaders at the front, which would also be very much the choice. They're simply not attending. Well, I think I agree with the people who this is I know some people are going to be freaked out by this. I think that the elected officials should go actually because that's part of their job. Now, for people who are screaming at the radio and said, <laughs> "Oh, you had a lot to say about Talladega not going." Cuz I don't think they should have gone. Those are people right, are there. not elected. And yeah. this is a school that was uh, founded by slaves and the man has been very clear about his racist comments. Period. So now you're doing a sellout thing as far as I'm concerned. I get why they went, but I'm saying I have a strong feeling about that. But with the elected officials, I feel as though I think the Cambridge mayor, Denise Simmons, sort of put it the way I was thinking about it. I want to be there and be witness to, I don't agree with you, but but I represent some people who don't agree with you, and we're going to be right here. I will say this about Catherine Clark and I think Karen Bass in California. Both of them actually asked their constituents, and the answer came back, do not come. So to that degree, if you're representing your constituency, the, at least a lot of them that responded, you know, I, I feel better about it. And finally, I will say, some people decided they weren't going to go because in support of John Lewis after President Trump sort of, you know, jumped up and down on John Lewis erroneously. And I think they were just looking for an excuse not to go. John Lewis can really take care of himself, people. <laughs> so I'm glad well, you want to stand up with him, but I'm, 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 I'm for real. Uh, right, no, I you know, you know, but there were you plenty, know. you know, I don't know if I'd call them excuses, right? Yeah. There were plenty of reasons not to go before. And John, I know, but they had right. said that. But right, the, right after mm-hmm. he did his thing, then they said, "Okay." Well, he's an opinion you know. leader, yeah. and you know that you can't question him. Well, the president has, yeah. yeah. but you can't question his social justice resume. And I think sometimes when someone who is that a has come up through the struggle the way he did, and has the, he's living history. Yes. If he's saying he's not going, I'm going to do a double check on myself. Well, I, okay, I can take that, but but you know he was the one that is this our got first fight? No, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so anyway, I guess we both sort of come down with where, what Peter's point is: is that either position really is a valid one from whichever way you're coming. I think you just have to understand whatever's mm-hmm. happening in the long term and just be ready to deal with mm-hmm. that. Um, and it's not going to probably not going to be pretty either side if you are a person that doesn't agree with his policies. Anyway, so that's that. And I th- if it, I would yeah. not agree at all if it was. A- policy argument. Okay. It was just, I don't agree with the direction he wants to take the country. I don't think that's a valid reason for not attending uh, an event like this. I, I really do think it's something deeper than that. Okay. Very good. President Trump, by the time people hear this, he will be President Trump, the 45th president of the United States, has said he's going to go to his inauguration and his first day was going to be Monday. Let's hear what he has to say about uh, looking forward to starting the job. What's the first thing you're going to do when you walk into the White House? 
Well, I want to go to work. Uh, Monday is uh, really the day that we start signing and working and making great deals for the country. And first of all, I should say a lot of people are mad because he's not starting until Monday. Do you all want to respond to that? Do you have a feeling about that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. I do. Okay. Like, Peter and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, in Massachusetts, we had this saying, do your job, right, yeah. to, to borrow from Bill Belichick. Do your job. The presidency is not a business day sort of thing. And especially uh, given that he had said, on day one, I'm going to, on day one, I'm going to. He's just setting up from the very beginning that for him, the presidency is is a part-time job. Hmm. What about you, Peter? Well, I think it's fine if you want to start doing a lot of things where you're surrounded by congressional leaders and you're going to sign off on things and issue some executive orders and you want to um, have the moment to yourself to do that on, on a Monday. But I, I think every indication of how he views the job is that he doesn't un yet understand that it's a 24-7 kind of job. I have never uh, been critical of presidents who leave the White House. In this era of modern communications, uh, the president, wherever the president goes, is essentially the White House. It's, it, if they're doing it from a te Texas ranch or Camp David or on vacation in Hawaii, uh, they never leave the job. It, it is always with them. They're always being brief. They never have a day off. So it's fine if he, you know, is is going to do what his predecessors have done and leave the White House and and go to where he's most comfortable. Quite frankly, given his erratic nature. When he's making decisions, I want him at his most comfortable. <laughs> yeah, so if that's in Florida or in Manhattan, fine. But I don't think he fully understands the weight of the office that he's about to step into. You agree? I do. Mm -hmm. and, and I think structurally what that's done is he has a wildly empowered vice president. We heard from John Kasich the way the Suns offered it to him. You basically get to run the ship. And uh, that means his cabinet-level choices are also wildly empowered. So he won the Electoral College, but he doesn't seem particularly interested in actually governing or, to Peter's point, really understanding all that he has to truly do to govern. You know, we use this metaphor, we just need a businessman, we just need a business person in politics all the time. And I think what Donald Trump is uh, uh, learning the hard way is that, guess what, in politics you work a lot harder yeah. at the presidency. Yeah. That's my guest, Erin O'Brien. Um, she's at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Before um, she spoke, you heard Peter Ubertaccio, and he is a professor at Stonehill College. So a couple things. You, you just mentioned something, and those are the – I want to look now forward to the first 100 days and what we, we think is going to happen in the first 100 days and some issues that no doubt will be addressed. But first, you mentioned the cabinet. So we are in the midst of the hearings with a lot of the members of his cabinet – so far, I'm hearing that maybe three will be in place, signed off on, and they're all, interestingly enough, and maybe you all have some insight into this, all about military and security. So it's Mattis, it's the guy who's the head of Homeland Security, and it's Pompeo, who's another security wing. Those three for sure. After that, we have a problem. So does it seem unusual to you that those three would get a pass? They They had some questions, but I think people were fairly comfortable with them. I, I'm not surprised that they. I don't. I don't think they're they're getting a pass. I think particularly uh, General Mattis. You know, it was a very thorough hearing. Uh, I think he's well respected among Democrats and Republicans. A lot of support from people who have been very critical of Donald Trump. So, I think again, going back to the nature of this new president, you need to have 
your national security team in place. Because while he and others, you know, we, we talk about the 100 days, if we say we, we, these are the things that we can expect to happen. It really is, and when presidents are most tested, is all of those unexpected things that are going to happen, particularly those things that happen around the world. And we know that he doesn't pay close attention to his briefings. He, he doesn't receive them daily very much hopeful that that changes. But he really does need to have these people in place because the world continues to churn. And uh, as soon as he's in charge, it's now his decision on how to respond. And what he's soon going to learn, something that Aaron referenced earlier, is that you know having Congress debate a bill or suggesting what a policy should be is the easy stuff. Presidents are tested because they're the only ones who can make the really hard decisions mm-hmm. at a moment's notice. And he needs to have a team in place to be able to provide him the information because he's going to have to start making some very difficult decisions. You know, I've been struck by two things about the hearings. One, there's always one or two cabinet officials, any administration in the modern era, I should say, that get a lot of attention, right? Uh, you know, I can think of like Lonnie Guineer and, mm. you know, President Clinton. And then I forget who the second person was. It was a Zoe woman. Baird. Nice. Oh, Zoe Baird. Um, and then the third, Janet Reno, and she finally. And so every single modern president has one or two that garners a lot of attention. What I'm struck by for Donald Trump is how many of the hearings people are really engaged in, which as a political scientist, I'm like, this is amazing. People are like C-spanning. They are watching these hearings and to get so much blowback on several of these and have people so attuned, I think is quite telling. And it says something about the tenor of the country. And secondly, in terms of not having um, many in place is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that, you know, a lot of the information on tax returns or some of the complicated financial dealings, for some, not all, of his choices were not, weren't ready. And so, you know, it is Congress's job to have oversight over these individuals and vote. And, you know, we don't want to reward behavior of not providing the information. So, uh, you know, the, the team that needs to be there is there, but I think Congress is doing its job. All right, I want you to listen to what uh, President Trump has to say about his cabinet. And I believe we're in the process of putting together one of the great cabinets, certainly a cabinet with the highest IQ that anybody has ever. I mean, these these are seriously great people. Okay. Well, I would just say that uh, Rick Perry is replacing Ernest Moniz. I'm not sure <laughs> that uh, we want to be judging IQs. Well, it, but touche. Uh, um, or I don't understand. No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, I just I just heard today that he didn't really understand that the nuclear stuff was underneath yeah. was part of his job as Department well, of Energy. Yeah, or, or yeah. that he really understood what energy was. But I, I actually want to go back to that clip in that I'm actually struck by something a little different. So much of Donald Trump's campaign was a true populism, mm-hmm. that these elites in Washington mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, these overeducated, <laughs> yeah. You know, fancy degrees, no real work sort of stuff. It shows you that the magnetism of his personality for those who really like him. Some would say a cult of personality. That when he says, my my team, my cabinet has the highest IQ, 
that's a cheer line. Barack Obama had said that it would have been, you're out of touch, yeah. you're those sort of things. So that transition, it, it does show you the willingness to go along with what he's saying is stunning in many ways. And of course, you know, let's also be reminded that his cabinet, it's the first cabinet in several administrations, I want to say since Reagan, but I, I'd like to double check on that, that doesn't have a Latino or a Latina mm. there. It is the whitest cabinet in many years. A lot of men. Right. A lot of white men. And mm. he's equating that with high IQ. Well, this is what he had to say about Rex Tillerson, who's, you know, at a, really a point of contention. Let's listen. Rex is one of the greatest and most skilled global business leaders of our time. Made some of the greatest deals ever made in the oil industry or any industry. A great diplomat, a strong man, a tough man, a man who's already earned an avalanche of endorsements and growing praise from our nation's top leaders. Okay, so as we know, Rex Tillerson is up for Secretary of State. And there, you know, I think prior to his sitting down for the first go round anyway, a lot of, you know, people had a, some suspicions about him with regard to Putin. But in the larger context, people thought he is a smart man. He maybe there's hope. People are concerned about his friendship award from Vladimir Putin. Um, that's a little nerve wracking. Um, but he did not perform well at all, which is, and I'm just using him as an example of some of the rest of them that, Maybe they have the high IQ and they come with the credentials, Peter, but they didn't do well in front of and answering simple questions, not pointed, nasty questions. Sure. No, no, I get, and, he, he, uh, look, I, I'm not one who believes that a, a CEO of a global corporation can't be a good diplomat. I mean, I think that, that that is entirely possible given the complexity at that level and the kind of international work that you do. But uh, he didn't perform well. He was unprepared. And took a lot of incoming from certainly from Senator Rubio on the Republican side and then from plenty of Democrats. He looked like he was not ready for the spotlight. That is particularly important for a secretary of state. Other cabinet officials who who may not garner the same kind of attention or whose words don't impact the uh, relationship between the United States and other countries, perhaps less so important. But here, the words of a secretary of state are enormously important. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's worrisome. You know, I think that that I'm not sure that, that his nomination is going to fail, but certainly his appearance before the committee raised a lot of concerns, uh, not only about how how he's going to perform as Secretary of State, but who's directing American foreign policy. He, he doesn't appear to be the counterweight to the president that other Secretary of States could be by virtue of their experience. Uh, he doesn't seem prepared to give the kind of advice to the president that, that other Secretary of State's been able to do. So I think that the Tillerson <laughs> nomination raises a lot of concerns about the direction of, of the country. And yet one of the things that some people who are in support of him, though they note that his performance wasn't very good, is that he is a very calm presence. And that is a counterweight to the sort of eroticism that, that uh, Donald Trump may bring to a discussion. And what you need when you're talking about volatile situations is someone who is naturally calm, A, and B, potentially has been in volatile situations and is not rattled by that. Sure. You know. Wow. Um, I, you know... Let's think about this. For a position this important, the, the best line on the resume right now is he's calming. Okay. And I mean that seriously in the sense like what a low bar that the onset of this presidency has brought us. And I, I think to follow up on something Peter said, I, the arrogance of showing up, I don't doubt that he's an intelligent man. Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that he has keen understanding of a certain set of facts. 
But the fact that he thought he could sort of waltz in, and that's my own language, obviously mm-hmm. put it in, and, and sort of outsmart or, or to not prepare is deeply troubling for the role he wants to play, given the erraticism of Donald Trump. And it speaks to a larger, I think, structural issue of the the Trump presidency that the party, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party of Hillary had won, knows how to get people ready for these hearings. That's part of the party apparatus. And when you're Donald Trump and you came up largely outside the party, yes, Priebus is around, but he doesn't have the experience in government around him, it means that in part he wasn't getting a good prep. It just shows me how underprepared with the basics they are. Is that because they rushed? Um, You know, that now they're slowing down some of the, Mm -hmm. you know, because because they were the ones that, you know, that wasn't the the call of the the Senate to rush. The transition team was trying to rush this. I mean, I think it's in part not knowing what they don't know. Right. right? And so maybe they're learning to take some more time and things like that. But this isn't perfunctory. These are tough questions and they're legitimate questions. I think that the challenge here right now is these hearings in this era of hyperpartisanship, unfortunately, I don't think they matter as much as they used to, that a, a poor performance is unfortunately read through the lens of hyperpartisanship mm-hmm. as right. opposed to being read through the lens of, is this person qualified? I might not agree with mm-hmm. them because, you know what, elections have consequences and Donald Trump won the Electoral College. But it still demands that people are there that are thoughtful and can answer those questions or when they don't know, have a specter or a sense of what they don't know and can offer, here's where I would look for more of that information. But to me, the fact that he's being sold primarily as the calming influence just I find very, very scary from the sense it just exacerbates how unsure we are of how Donald Trump will handle, as Peter said, those very tough situations that come up for presidents. So do you think he is any real danger? I guess what I'm asking is, I mean, as much as I personally not, not like to see Jeff Sessions, for example, get attorney general, I think he's going to go through. And I think a lot of people that got some tough questioning, perhaps even Betsy DeVos, who did not do well no. either. Is there anybody you see not happening? And, and more to the point beyond that, what's the new administration going to look like, Peter? So I think I'm uh, trying to figure out what Senator Rubio is going to do on Tillerson. I think if, if he were to indicate that he couldn't support it, then I, I think Tillerson's nomination is in, mm. in jeopardy. I think Democrats look to be united there. I think Rubio would probably not take that step without knowing that there are a few other Republicans that would go with him. So that seemed like a real possibility. We just haven't heard much about it. Uh, but what about uh, McCain recently. and Graham? Because they've been suspicious of him from the beginning because of the Putin. Indeed. Uh, I think that that is probably a big factor mm-hmm. in uh, determining how that nomination goes. I think the DeVos nomination should be in jeopardy. That one was definitely rushed. The senators weren't even given enough time to right. follow up with appropriate levels of, of questioning. So I, I can see her uh, uh, being confirmed, but that would be kind of remarkable mm-hmm. uh, given given her performance. You know, it, what does it look like? You want to defer to a new president more often than not. You know, this is it's important for them to have their team around them to to have the people they want in place. These agencies need to start working. I'm in some ways, less concerned about members of the cabinet, most of whom I think will be confirmed, than the fact that there are so few sub-cabinet nominations that have been made um, and that we're not paying a lot of attention to And those are the real that. workers. Well, I, yeah. yes, because yeah. uh, Betsy DeVos does not know how to run right. a complicated agency. That's not a critique mm-hmm. necessarily. 
we put a lot of former governors or former senators or people like that because they should not be micromanaging those departments. They set a tone. They set a mission. And then you have all these layers of other people. And those people haven't even been nominated yet. And yeah. so I think that it's going to be bumpy here for a while because you have holdovers from the Obama administration. Uh, there's going to be some tension between them and the new boss. But they've been so bad at vetting, although it clearly hasn't mattered. They've been so bad at preparing their nominees that I cannot imagine President Jeb Bush, President Marco Rubio, President Hillary Clinton allowing people to go before these committees who have not been either better vetted or prepared for what they're going to encounter. If they didn't do that at that level, I'm really concerned about what's happening at the, two, you know, the next level down for the folks who need to be in place within the next six to eight months. Well, let's look at some of the stuff that is probably going to be impacted by this. I was interested in your take on the new federalism, Aaron, coming from the Democrats this time, the states' rights, Mm -hmm. um, which may be a a way of constructively dissenting against whatever the policies. Now we're talking about Mm -hmm. policies of President Trump. Could you explain that a little bit and why you think that's going to we're going to be seeing more of that? Sure. I think uh, and I would say Maura Healy here Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts has been at the forefront uh, of this. We know in politics in American politics, and it's certainly since Reagan, Republicans are for states' rights and Democrats are about the federal government. And that that's sort of been a trope, and it's been a very real one. We want the D, the Democrats want the DOJ active, and you know Republicans want states to be able to make those decisions, and and that's been the tension. We block grant a lot of stuff right. so states can do this. Well, guess what? <laughs> In the era of Donald Trump, Democrats all of a sudden are looking at true unified party control in Washington. He has the House, he has the Senate, he obviously has the executive branch, and he's soon to have the court. So what constitutionally opens that up? Federalism. I mean, I always say, what's more boring on paper than federalism? (laughs) To my students, they laugh. But then once we get into it, federalism really, really matters. And so the Democrats have changed their tune. And that tune sounds federalism, 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 localism. (laughs) Because these are places by which, um, to use language or not exact language, but what Moore Healy and others have been arguing, is resistance. Um, that states do have rights and they don't have to just follow some of these federal mandates or some of these federal pushes. And so uh, Democrat, it shows you the pliability of mm. both parties. Yeah. Uh, and and I, that is an indictment of both. But with unified party control, Democrats don't have a lot of states. And the states they do are best equipped to push back and come up with policy and come up with language and to keep winning that uh, buttresses against the Trump agenda. That's one of the few places that Democrats can act and model because we know states copy each other. Mm. So once one state does something and it's effective, states, like I said, are they're like eighth grade girls, right? They copy each other. Mm -hmm. And so places like Massachusetts and others, if they can be laboratories of showing places to expand or go against the Trump agenda in ways that are meaningful, I think that we're going to be seeing that a lot. So so what do the conservatives say then? What do the Republicans say? Because that's been their thing. So do they say, you're (laughs) right? right. No, but I'm serious. So if you take this and, and then you constructively dissent, use that as a weapon against President Trump, 
what do the conservatives say now? We don't like it anymore. I mean, what do they? What well, do they say? Uh, <laughs> you know, Republicans are starting to warm up to Russia, so the, it's a mad world. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah. No, I think there are more than a few Republican senators at some of these hearings having a chuckle at the expense of their liberal colleagues who suddenly uh, see virtue in federalism, see virtue in a weakened presidency when they didn't see it uh, before. Uh, they were they were making policy calculations in the past. And by my way of thinking, at least Democrats were not as concerned as they should have been Mm. of power flowing to the executive. Uh, When President Obama said things like, you know, if Congress doesn't act, I will, that should have caused them a lot of concern. It didn't because they agreed with the policy actions that he was taking. Now they have a president uh, who they vehemently disagree with and and want to bring some of that back. So, no, I I don't think that uh, – first of all, I think it's a little overstated. Democrats, to say that they are now believing in states' rights, which is, of course, a loaded term, they've always believed in in states experimenting with public policies. One of the successes of the Clinton years, and, and Bill Clinton was really quite open about this, is that, you know, the states are laboratories and they would want in Washington, Democrats say, what's working there and let's apply that nationally, whereas Republicans would be a little more resistant to the idea that just because it's working at the state level, it should be applied nationally. So Democrats have always been in favor of a certain kind of federalism, but they have always been, while they've wanted states to experiment with certain policies, they've believed in, in the concept of kind of national rights. Correct. And and so the reason, as Aaron pointed out, they want the Department of Justice to be enhanced, particularly civil rights divisions, is because they don't believe that a person's rights, civil rights, natural rights, should end at a state border. Now that's and that's also a, the history is that well, you couldn't get uh-huh. any justice. That's from the right. States. right. That's right. That <laughs> yeah. states are very good at covering things up. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. um, very good at denying rights, and so. It's a certain kind of federalism. Uh, Democrats are not going to stop believing in that. They are Agreed. going to continue to to believe that there are national rights that should be protected by national agencies like the Department of Justice. And many Democrats uh, were very angry at a Bill Clinton, say, with welfare reform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, my own research with co-authors, the mm-hmm. single best predictor of whether states got tough, tougher than the federal mandate under welfare reform under Bill Clinton was the percentage of African-Americans claiming welfare in that state. Mm. Well, here's some news um, from The Hill, which is a very well-respected publication out of Washington, D.C. They got a hold of the proposed budget they're working with, which seems to be based on a Heritage Foundation budget of a few years ago. And here are some of the changes that are proposed that, according to this Hill story, as you know, moving very quickly through the the budget folks on the transition team. First of all, important to me, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting would be privatized while the National Endowment for the Arts and National Endowment for the Humanities would be eliminated entirely. Uh, the Departments of Commerce and Energy would see major reductions in funding um, with programs under their jurisdiction eliminated or transferred to other agencies. And the two people who are working on it, I guess, have worked very closely with um, Mulvaney, who's Rick Mulvaney, who's President Trump's choice to head the Office of Management and Budget. So he he hasn't said anything, but in the past, this was the kind of thing he voted for. Now, here's what's interesting. The cabinet picks have not been apprised yet of these reforms, which, of course, would reduce resources in their agencies. But I imagine they just go along with it. They will have a chance to review the proposals, offer some feedback, appeal for changes. But um, according to this article, it's moving like a bullet train. It's pretty drastic, as they say. Oh, by the way, the Department of Energy rolled back funding for nuclear physics and advanced scientific computing to 2008 levels. 
Yeah, this is deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is, and yeah. I think it will. It will move. Uh, it will move fast. Republicans have an opportunity. The first budget is, I think, the most important budget that a president proposes. It sets the tone for the next, you know, four years. Certainly, it impacts what Congress will do, and so, so it, it's going to be a pretty big battle. He has the margins in both the House and the Senate, uh, but this is where I, I, I think that the political reality starts to kick in as well. Look, there are going to be reductions. Yeah, I have no doubt there are going to be tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans. We're going to see that kind of budget, but whether you, it really. Uh, dovetails with the blueprint remains to be seen because senators and members of Congress are still up for re-election mm. and they care more about that reality than they do about, you know, what, what an erratic president is going to tweet, uh, particularly a president who lost by three million votes and didn't run ahead of any of them in their states. And so, you know, there are, there are still political realities and obstacles that can be thrown in the way of that kind of budget becoming a reality. Uh, I should mention um, before you say anything, um, Aaron, they have a group of programs that they label corporate welfare programs. One is the Minority Business Development Agency. That's going to be gone. But go ahead. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to see the rest of that list because yeah. I'm guessing there are, are some omissions. and uh, Economic <laughs> Development Administration. Those will be gone. Yeah. Um, I, I could think of some other right. corporate welfare. Yeah. I think that I'm going to borrow a line from uh, a friend and colleague at Harvard, Theta Scotchpole, and she says, um, big consequences do not necessarily flow from big causes. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, the list you gave and the, the addendum to it, it is a perfect scenario. Listen. Both Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, Donald Trump won the Electoral College, were going to come into office without a, a major mandate. Both were deeply unpopular, uh, high, high unfavorable ratings, a lot of questions surrounding them. And so, you know, three million people more did vote for Hillary Clinton, but he took the Electoral College, and that's the way we play this game. He's coming in, depending on the poll you look at, or he's in now between 37 and 41 percent favorability. But as we've already said, he's got unified party control. And so these are big, big policy consequences, many of which, though not all, poll really bad for the vast majority of Americans. But when you hand over the presidency and the Senate and the House and the court to one party, they're going to run with it. Mm. So, it, you know, it, he does not have a major mandate, but it doesn't matter for those first two years. Why wouldn't they put why wouldn't they push their policy agenda mm. through? And especially most presidents are reined in by their party a bit. You know, George Bush or Barack Obama couldn't go too far to the right, too far to the left because they have to worry about the coattails. They have some sort of loyalty to the party. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is a scorched earth guy with the party. If the party happens to help him, that's great. But he's not concerned uh, about anyone else. So the, the moderating effects of policy or the moderating effects of party aren't there. And those in the party that he's surrounded himself or, uh, with are not modal Republicans. We've got yeah. a lot of alt-right people. Yeah. I mean, we've got Bannon in there. Um, and, you know, we already went through the cabinet picks that they are um, more conservative than the average uh, Republican on the street. Yeah, that was that, it was very interesting. And this is not to say, again, that people are thinking, what did I think was going to happen? No, of course, I expected policies to change and I expected them to, to hew toward that. But they seem rather drastic. Yeah. But to your I think you, your point is well taken. He doesn't owe anybody. That's been his whole point. I don't owe any of you nothing. You know, particularly those of you who weren't even standing with me at the beginning. So forget it. I'll just do what I want. Of course, to your point, Peter, you got to move a whole group of people now to well, make it happen. It, it, because the flip <laughs> is also true. Yeah. Uh, they don't owe him. 
Well, that's true. And I think we, for, we, yeah. he doesn't have a magic wand. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, the point when Aaron keeps talking about party uh, unity, and, and she's right, except he's, he's not the kind of party leader we have come to expect from presidents, right? Um, he, he ran completely outside. He hijacked a party and, and has taken it over uh, to, to win the White House. Uh, Paul Ryan and, and uh, Mitch McConnell don't owe their positions to his election. So when 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 Rick Perry, the the tech, former Texas governor who will be the Secretary of Energy, testifies before Congress, uh, he I, I'd be surprised if there if if the Energy Secretary goes in agreeing to that level of reduction in the Energy Departments, but that starts to create some level of distance between the president and what members of Congress are going to do. You know, there, I don't, Ronald Reagan, who had more political capital, was far more popular than Donald Trump, who had a Republican Senate and, and de facto control of the House, couldn't get rid of Social Security, couldn't get rid of the Department of Education, couldn't follow through on a lot of those things that he had promised his base, right? Um, now, I think Donald Trump is cut from a very different cloth and it's very dangerous and also unpredictable. So I think there is a greater possibility now. We also have a different kind of Republican in control of Congress than we did in the early 1980s. Uh, but I'm not I'm not quite willing to suggest that just because they have that unified party control that we're not going to see some movement away from a president's agenda. And, you know, I'm going to disagree with my good friend <laughs> and colleague uh, a little bit. I, I don't have the same kind of confidence. And the, the only reason is, you know, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And watching Republicans who had very real it, it, many of the cleavages that I think, um, you know, uh, Peter is referring to in terms of, you know, that we've got libertarian Republicans, social conservative evangelicals and more, you know, business types. You know, those are very real differences within the Republican <laughs> Party. But when push came to shove, they lined up behind Donald Trump, including like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, though th- those are the two I've been mo- most outspoken. They nonetheless got in line. Paul Ryan nonetheless mm-hmm. eventually got in line. They all eventually went with him. And so even those individuals that we had um, or many had the most hope for, you know, Republic over party still went with him. And so I- I'm I see the room for their distance on some of his oh, Donald Trump's um, decisions and choices in Congress. I just don't see a lot of political courage. I hope I'm wrong. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston and Peter Ubitaccio of Stonehill College. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return... Tito Jackson officially launches his run to become the mayor of Boston, highlights from Marty Walsh's State of the City address, and more. Up next, we're talking local politics. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're back with the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien and Peter Ubitaccio. We've been talking about national politics, President Trump's first 100 days, what we can expect, 
and lots of other things. And that's national. So we're going to move local now and talk about two of the biggest things that have happened around here. And one, of course, is Tito Jackson, Councillor Tito Jackson of the Boston City Council, in case folks don't know him, deciding and announcing that he is going to run for Boston mayor against Marty Walsh. So let's first get both of your takes. Aaron. Holy smokes, Tito. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think he was probably better positioned four years from now, but he's also really smart to know that if Walsh is in for eight years, uh, we, we like to assign the mayor uh, uh, role in Boston in perpetuity, right? Um, so I w- I'm not surprised he was running, but I thought he would have announced earlier. Mm. But I think it, it sets up a fascinating race. And especially, this isn't a new analysis, but I think it's the correct one. Um, you know, Felix Arroyo, John Barrows, Charlotte Goller Ritchie, who really put Marty Walsh over the finish line when it was John Conley, a white guy, for, a Irish white guy versus another Irish white guy, was mobilizing communities of color. That's And Marty Walsh had a great ground game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two things are what put him in office. Boston's a majority minority city. And um, that coalition, I mean, Barros and Arroyo, uh, Arroyo Sr. had done a fundraiser for Walsh the same day Tito announced. Mm. So to see how communities of color break is going to be fascinating to really push the fact that this is a majority-minority city. I think many of us, I'm sure, have been watching or reading retrospectives on Obama Mm -hmm. uh, in the last couple weeks. And Obama himself said, you know, he sort of put his run at 20, 25 percent, his ability to win. And I, uh, not just because they're both African-American, but in part Mm -hmm. in the context uh, of Boston, I would put Tito's at that same. It's a very real possibility. I don't think it's a probability. He still has the problem of having never run citywide, but he's gained a real name at a public institution myself. He's really gained uh, amongst Boston parents and Boston public schools. He's really come out as quite an advocate and a respected advocate amongst those parents. And Marty Walsh has not had that same kind of experience. And so I think he's a little bit more known in the city than many people think. But I think this is going to be a very real race. And it's also the fact that Walsh has um, has done a good job, especially compared to past Boston mayors, which is, again, not the highest bar, mm-hmm. but uh, in incorporating uh, individuals of color, a much more diverse city hall. And so just me as a political scientist, I love it when we have a race that is going to have cross-cutting cleavages. It's he's, I, I was um, meeting with a gentleman who runs the My Brother's Keeper, mm. and he's really, and, and Walsh has supported a lot of money. That's an Obama initiative for black and brown boys, as they put it, to, you know, upward mobility and all these things. And, and Walsh has really put money behind that. So I, I think it's going to be a fantastic, really push in different sort of directions here. And I'm pleased that Boston's having a real mayoral race and a real mayoral race that takes seriously all of Boston and wealth and income inequality and all these things. So I'm actually really excited about it. That's Erin O'Brien. She's my guest from UMass Boston. She's a political science there. Uh, Before you speak, Peter, I want to just listen to a clip of Tito announcing. It is time that we have a mayor who spends as much time in uptown as in downtown, who spends more time thinking about and investing in neighborhoods and communities than focusing on City Hall Plaza. All right, Peter. <laughs> you know, without one one sum, I would say I think the, the counselor has had a very good opening a gambit here. He, he had his excellent 
a video, really good announcement speech. You know, I think it, it's been a, come as flawless as you can get when you're an upstart challenging a popular incumbent mayor in Boston. It is very difficult to unseat a, a Boston mayor. The last time it was done was in 1949 under very unusual circumstances. It's just not easily done. And um, while I th- agree with the council that the, you know, a new mayor makes mistakes, I think this mayor has made some mistakes. Uh, I don't think he has significantly damaged his standing. Uh, but but Tito Jackson comes into this race for all the reasons that Aaron just just said. He, he's a more serious challenger than we might have expected uh, under under this mayor so soon, and I think that's a good thing on the whole. Um, you know, regardless of of Walsh is going to get support from all all sectors of of Boston. He's just really well regarded. And he's got a very good team. Cities uh, like Boston, which are which are really prosperous and doing really well and facing this tremendous pressure of inequality and also the pressure of their uh, its own identity and whether a city like Boston can continue to be a place where where working class people can afford to live and want to live. I think Walsh is working really hard at at that, but it's important to have someone who is going to to drive that issue and kind of be incessant on that issue. If if Jackson wins, it is it is the Massachusetts political story of the century. Um, (laughs) If Walsh wins, I think he'll be a better mayor as a result of the challenge. And I think it'll push him to the left. And then also, I, I'm going to beat a, a drum, a favorite drum of mine, the, the fact that we hold these races in, you know, odd years, mm-hmm. uh, odd numbered yeah. years, uh, is going in is a structural disadvantage for Tito Jackson. Uh, all the research shows that. So let me ask this question, because you, you mentioned it part of your discussion, Aaron, about Mayor Walsh's effort to sort of ingratiate himself. I mean, first he won with the help of communities of color. And now he applied for this Rockefeller grant mm-hmm. about resilience. And we were the only one of of a hundred cities to say our issue is learning to cope with race. That was his idea. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, instituted these citywide conversations. He's done the, the audits of the staff. He's been out there talking about it. I happened to be with him at the Boston Convention Center for the Martin Luther King annual breakfast. And by that time, I had counted how many MLK things he'd gone to. I said, you've been to about 20. He said, yeah, well, you know, when you go to one, you sort of had to go to all the rest of them. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know, he's showing up in all of the right places. Um, But on the other hand, Tito is... In, certainly in some areas, ubiquitous. I mean, mm-hmm. he shows up everywhere at these events. He he was really prominent with the Boston Latin thing. He put himself out there. Yeah. I mean, he challenged some of these universities about what does your diversity look like on staff. So this I is remember, very he, interesting. He hauled the yeah. president of BU That's right. uh, in yeah. front of the, the city council. That's no small thing. Yeah. Um, look, uh, Marty Walsh is not befuddled by race. And so in many ways, this is a sign of uh, maturity of the city, of the progress of the region, where you have a mayor who's not befuddled by race, who can speak to these issues, who is going to be challenged by a city councilor of color, who's going to speak to those issues and other issues. That has the potential of being a really excellent conversation, not only on race, but on inequality and on the stubborn segregation of poverty uh, in the city. I think both Walsh and Jackson do speak to these issues, and I think that on the whole is a very good thing. All right. So the mayor gave his State of the City address just this week, and what I thought was, well, ba-boom, if you have the power <laughs> of the incumbency, you can do this. Let's listen to Mayor Walsh talk about this free pre-K. But there's plenty of room for improvement. The gaps that remain come in the shapes of race, language, and need. Equity demands a bold solution. That's why this week I will file legislation 
to finally eliminate the opportunity gap in early education and for the first time in Boston's history offer free pre-kindergarten to every single four-year-old in our city. Well, that's kind of powerful. From That's a bully pulpit, I would say. And that's going right to the heart of Tito's strength, which is, you know, public schools yeah. and conversation with about education. No, I hesitate to use the term embarrassment of riches because mm-hmm. embarrassment suggests that, you know, we're paying too much attention to yeah. inequality and race, which is definitely not the case in Boston. But uh, embarrassment of riches in the way that I think, you know, Peter's, uh, what you just said, it speaks to. Like, listen, both of these individuals are taking inequality, racial inequality, not afraid to say it's all class, uh, as well as class, to take it seriously. Um, what do you say? Race, language, and need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that that's pretty powerful. I actually think it, when he does his Mission Hill, you know, he does Beacon Hill and he names all the neighborhood hills, I think it's incredibly effective. And you're right, he's hitting in where Tito lives and where Tito's been effective. But I think most of us in Boston don't care that much. Who cares if you're treading on his policy space? That's not where most people live. If you're going to get free pre-K, how that's going to help residents of Boston. It does close gaps. And quite frankly, it helps people who need a child care yeah. and, and things like that. So I don't think most residents of Boston are, are that swept up in who's delivering it right now. The fact that both of them are talking about it speaks to all of Boston as opposed to individual sectors of Boston. And I was laughing when I heard that uh, the, the tape we just played. There is still no mistaking that oh, Marty Walsh is from Boston. Yeah. Man. Yeah. 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 And I did, again, in full information, I definitely did policy work for him in the past, but it's like uh, people outside of Massachusetts hear that and they know who, where he's from. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, Peter, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Otherwise, I'm going to switch to another subject. You let me know. Well, you know, I I agree mostly with Aaron, as is more often than not the case. And uh, uh, one thing he's got going for him also is making that promise in the 70s, early 80s would have been very difficult to fulfill. Boston's really prosperous and uh, tax receipts are up and they can do this. It will still be expensive, but they can do this. And I think it adds to the the kind of picture he's painting of Boston where you could provide quality public education for a child from four years old through college at fine institutions like UMass Boston, uh, where you've got public public institutions doing this. So I, I'm not sure it's just in response to Jackson's candidacy. Well, Jackson's thing is that not everybody is enjoying all the fruits sure. and the embarrassment of riches. And so there's there are those. So that can be effective as well. We'll see. All right. Um, switching topics. It's an interesting meeting with uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy that seemed to not turn out very well. So it was uh, purported to be, let's talk about where we go from here now that President Trump is elected. And he spoke for 20 minutes and then left and people were felt like they were being used and not listened to. And also there was not a plan, all of which made everybody mad. So, <laughs> so, so Peter, this is not, I'm surprised because a few months ago they did a gathering of young, focused on young Democrats in the state, which I thought was very smart, like sort of looking at that pipeline. Again, he's one of the people who said he is going to the inauguration. I don't have a problem with him going. He explained why. So how does this hurt him if it does or just make everybody too furious to hear what he has to say the next go around? Uh, it doesn't hurt uh, <laughs> okay. Congressman Kennedy because I don't think uh, folks who have followed his career and has fo- followed his work in, in Congress have any reason to doubt his commitment to the party, to progressive values. He's, he's, he's uh, 
continues to be a, a star of the party here. He's a rising star in, in Massachusetts, and he's not coasting either. I mean, he's actually doing real work in Washington and often working in a bipartisan way, but committed to his own ideas. So I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I wasn't at the meeting, so I can't, I can't tell you what happened, but I read the quote over and over again from someone who was there, who, uh, an activist who was there who called it a colossal waste of time. <laughs> and that quote has been played over and over again. And what I love about that is having met and gotten to know a few liberal activists, I can tell you that you could put together the most productive meeting with a 100-point plan for how you're going to take down the Trump administration, and there's going to be some Democratic activist sitting there honestly yelling about how this was a colossal waste of time. So it is partly okay. the nature of the audience. I don't think it does anything to harm either uh, the congressman's political future or, you know, Gus Bickford, uh, the chair of the party. It's still early. It may just have been feelings are still raw here it, we may have it may have been better to have that meeting you know a month from now after the inauguration not not a, not a few days before i would agree with that i mean the, the rawness of of this for democrats is very very real i mean i'm still hearing the uh, the rehashing of bernie versus hillary and you're like oh my like a we're not going to solve that one now yeah. right yeah. um so like a b look forward and you know kennedy also um refused to you or at, i forget exactly how one but the didn't use the, the, the legitimacy term correct yeah. those activists come on that is you know right. red meat to them mm-hmm. him his unwillingness to go there i'm sure he will eventually or whatever but uh that this is not a story that has legs as far as i'm concerned well, I think that if this is going to be if this state's going to be a role model to your earlier point about how we model dissent in some way, then he's got to take questions. That's the only thing I will say. I can't speak to I wasn't there either. But our, our Adam Riley was there and said people were pretty mad. So rather than have that, you got to take some questions. And there's also, <laughs> you know, it, to the extent that we can't be models, and obviously I've made that point, but I also think there's this other interesting sort of thing uh, many of us aren't talking about. There's a real there's only so many spots to move up to, right? Mm-hmm. And Massachusetts has one heck of a bench right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I'm leaving people out, but the most younger that come to mind, Kennedy, obviously, yeah. Seth Moulton, Catherine Clark, Maura Healy. Uh, I'm, I know I'm missing people, but... Uh, those are young people, the young guy that won on the Cape. Julian yeah. Sir, yeah. the new state senator. Yes. Yeah. And so with all that... that to the extent that, uh, I mean, they're politicians, and that's not a critique, mm-hmm. but they want to position themselves as well as position the state. And there's always a question on which they want to position more. <laughs> we just have a little while left in this conversation. I did want to get this on the table because by the time this airs, the Women's March marches will have happened. Boston is now going to be the second largest to the Washington one. That's the that's the information, and many around the world is there any long-term impact that you can see from that, Aaron? That's a great question. I would say potentially yes. Uh, anecdotally, the uh, the individuals who are turning out to this are individuals who aren't normally that active in politics. Sure, there's you know the, the usual suspects. But the fact that individuals, mostly women, obviously, who are coming who don't talk politics that much but felt something viscerally that their partner, if he is a man, didn't as a good Democrat or not or as an independent, the activation that can occur. I'm a big proponent. I always say this with movements. I hate the critique. Like, they're not there and they, they with every policy position. Well, no joke. Like you show you don't have to show up to a movement fully formed. You don't have to show up to a movement agreeing in every single thing. 
but to the extent that consciousness raising, to use the technical term, occurs, and to see all these like others, maybe you're in a community where uh, the other women in your community are much more conservative. To be surrounded by that, it is empowering. It's hugely empowering. And if I was running this march, I would be out there with clipboards, iPads, all this, getting names and addresses. Yeah. Uh, with that, I think it ha can have a huge lasting impact. And it also depends on how it's covered. The fact that these are going on in all these different um, cities is hugely important. You know, is very important. Yes, yes. <laughs> it is incredibly important. I, I want to make sure um, uh, that that is covered and covered in a very real way. A couple days ago on Twitter, you know, a, a sort of nasty hashtag on what these women are like was sort of going on. And I think that just is all the more telling why those women will be there. And especially in the National March started off with uh, there was a very quick critique that it was right. really white and it was um, really upwardly mobile. And they self-corrected. Yeah, that exactly. <laughs> yeah. It is a, a, an intersectional platform. And that, to me, is a sign of incredible progress. The waves of women's organizing usually took like 13 years for that to occur. The fact that that self-correction happened so quickly. And many of those women were like, yeah, you're right. Blind spot. Didn't see it. Oh, I don't know you. Come on in the fold. That's good. You get 30 seconds, Peter. Ooh. Well, um, I think Aaron also kind of alluded to some brass tacks with any of these moments. So many protest movements or social movements can dissolve in infighting and bickering between rival organizations uh, or they haven't planned for the next step. And so you have this, this incredible amount of energy and then there's no place to put it. So if they're not out there with the clipboards and their iPads and collecting information and data and then using that data to target folks where they live – then we will look back and say it really didn't have the impact. Because I'll tell you what, with Michael Moore in Washington, D.C., guess who? how that's going to be covered, right? Yeah, the, right, right? But the fact that it's it's also happening in cities around the country and the world can help to move coverage away from that and focus on some other things. But there are local and congressional races coming up in short order. And so if they're using the information they have at, the, at their disposal and then targeting folks where they live to stay active, well, now you're talking about something that can outlive uh, this particular weekend. And the, the coordination at the state level, at, at all these different cities, is actually – it bodes so much better than if it was just a D.C. Mm, right. thing. All these local news are going to be covering. States rights. Okay. We're back to that. <laughs> Thank you both for your very insightful Not comment. that way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Aaron O'Brien is chair and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Peter Rupitaccio is an associate professor of political science and the director of the Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbh.org UTR. You can also find our show on the WGBH app and listen again through the UTR podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes. And please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is John Parker. Andrea Aswahe is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.